The word of the Lord from Mark chapter 10, beginning with verse 5. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Brothers and sisters in Christ, all of you gathered here on this uh, day in the Lord's house, and those of you who may be joining us through our, our media ministry, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus. Amen. When's the last time you felt like you put your foot in your mouth? When's the last time you felt like you were in one of those awkward conversations where where somebody was maybe asking a pretty pointed question and it was on that boundary between what you know would be the, quote, politically correct answer and yet that that differed from the actual truth? And how close were you to trying to figure out which to do? Most people don't like those kind of situations, and and I'm one of those as well. I think that's really the situation that that Jesus was in as we heard our gospel reading for today. Those who came to him, the Pharisees, religious leaders of the day, came to him with a loaded question. And as such, it seems like they were anticipating that no matter how Jesus responded to this question, they would have him. That he would say something that that they could seize upon, something that they could take out of context and and just um, and just magnify to everyone around them to de- to discredit this one called Jesus of Nazareth. And so, what topic did they choose to bring? A topic that apparently was as touchy as it is today. And namely, a question about marriage and divorce. And so they approached Jesus and and asked whether it was okay for someone to get a divorce. What would you say if someone came to you, a good friend, a, a, a colleague, a coworker, whoever, and came to you saying, What do you think about me getting a divorce? How do you answer that question? Well, I don't know if I'm in a position to give you the perfect words or or the perfect answer. But what I can say is that it might help to see how Jesus responded and where it was that he decided to go for his answer. Notice what he did. He went back to the beginning, to the very beginning, the book of Genesis chapter 2 to give an answer. And in fact, I'm going to invite you, if you've got access to a pew Bible or or a digital electronic version of scripture, if you would, just uh, you might find it helpful to just simply have chapter 2 verses 18 through 25 in front of you. Um, It's on page 2 of the Bible, so in case you're looking for that, it's way at the beginning of Scripture. But notice that Jesus 
appealed to God's word. Did you notice that Jesus' disciples questioned him about his answer? To indicate that this was a touchy subject, his disciples, when they had him alone in the house, they they pushed him further. And then Jesus says those words, which must be offensive to many today, and perhaps offensive to those in that day. And again, Jesus responded by going back. He said, look at how God created things from the very beginning. And that's where we find ourselves. Chapter 2, verse 18. And it says this. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Let's stop right there. If you are familiar with Genesis chapter 1, which gives an overview of the seven days of creation, you'll notice that that what is introduced here is a little different than what we heard throughout that first chapter. For when God looked at everything that he had made, he repeatedly saw that it was good. In fact, six times God says that about his creation. And the final time he says it is very good. You see, this was perfection. This was paradise. This was without sin in the world, without flaw. We can't even imagine what it was like. And yet prior to sin coming into the world in chapter 3, we have these words again that says, where God said, it is not good. Something was not complete. Namely, man. You see, in the way that God chose to order his creation with human beings being the the ultimate of his creation. He brought all those uh, animals. He said, there's not a helper fit for the man. And so he brought all those animals forward, and, and Adam, as you know, gave names to every living creature and beast and animal and bird and so forth. But it still says, but for Adam there was not a helper found that was fit for him. Something wasn't right. And so now we're told in verse 21 of chapter 2, it says this, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Reminds me of a surgeon, an architect, and a lawyer. We're having coffee one day. And if you're wondering if this is a joke, you're absolutely right. <laughs> and they were Christians, and they were kind of discussing, having fun with each other, but, but they were discussing about which of their professions went back the furthest. And guess what? The surgeon got out his Bible and and pointed to Genesis chapter 2 verse 21 and he said there it is there's proof God did the first surgery on Adam he took out a rib and so forth and closed its place up I rest my case surgery is by far the earliest of the professions but the architect took issue and said and said wait wait a minute 
go back to the first chapter and near the very beginning of the scriptures it talks about how the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the earth and there was there was disorder there was even chaos and and then God took all that and made order out of it he made something perfect out of it and and that's what we as architects do we take all the mumble jumble and we put it into order and make things so obviously architecture is the first and oldest profession the lawyer simply looked at the other two and kind of chuckled and said but gentlemen where do you think the chaos came from (laughs) I love the lawyers trust me I do I really do and I appreciate you being able to to uh, be able to tolerate that at this point But perhaps that's how we might look at this account of God taking a rib from Eve. To many, this would simply be a joke. It would simply be a fairy tale, a myth, a legend, a fable that's been made up to try to describe where Adam and Eve came from, or for that matter, the first human beings. There are certainly those that would not look at this as being actual history. But I know one who disagrees with that assessment, and his name is Jesus. Did you notice that when Jesus gave his answer, the Son of God, who was also true man, in giving his answer, he pointed back to this book of Genesis and put his stamp of approval on it and referenced it for what it truly is, namely, the facts, as God has given them to us. The words that Moses had written down by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recording exactly where we came from. And that's something that we need to pay attention to. And so we have this account of God taking a rib from Adam and creating woman. Now that's different than how he created everything else. And in fact, if you go back even earlier in chapter 2, you discover that how God made Adam in the first place was quite a bit different than how he made everything else. Again, remembering Genesis chapter 1, it says that, and God said, let there be. He simply spoke the word and things came into being. Whether it was land or water or air or birds or sun or stars or moon or fish or creatures on the ground or vegetation. It was all done with the word of the mouth. Let there be. But not so. As chapter 2 of Genesis gives us a more detailed uh, explanation of how God created man, we find God on his hands and knees, if it will, and he's sculpting. Out of the dust of the ground, out of the clay, he's sculpting the absolute most perfect sculpture one could imagine of a human being. And then, he breathes into that creation. He breathes into that and gives his breath of life. And the man became a living being. 
You see what's so important about recognizing how God created Adam and ultimately Eve? He did not just say, let there be human beings. He could have. But no, I think by getting personally involved in a way demonstrates how important to God this creation was. That human beings were the the last things made, the climax of creation, the ones for which God got personally involved with and breathed his own life into so that man would be made in the image of God, in the likeness of God, with his breath, with an immortal soul. Now why is that important? Because you see, there are those who would look at these accounts as simply fairy tales, but their explanations have a much different view of human beings. Instead of being that which is the ultimate, the climax of creation, human beings in the big picture of things, in their theory, is nothing more than another creature that just happened to come about through this process of of species to species evolution. And that we shouldn't expect that Human beings are any more important or valuable than the the one-cell amoeba or anything else for that matter. Because we all came about in the same way. Now what do you think that does? If somebody truly believes that that's who we as human beings are, what does that do when we deal with things like the sanctity of life? When life begins and how important that life is? Or when life should end? And who has ultimate control of that? You see, human beings are vastly different than all of the other creatures that God has made. Because he has put his spirit within us. And every life from conception to our final days is precious and valuable in God's sight. And it's on this that Jesus put his imprimatur, his stamp of approval, recognizing of what God has done. And so in this perfection of creation, man was alone. There was no counterpart. There was no helper. But when he brought Eve to the man, He said, this at last is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Notice the interconnectedness between the two words in English. It's the same in Hebrew. There is a correlation between that word for man and woman. And that's how it's supposed to be. That's how God designed it. That's how God did it. As Jesus says, male and female, God made them. And God's plan for marriage? One man, one woman, together, one flesh for life. It sounds so simple. It sounds so basic. And yet, How many ways haven't we decided to do things our own way? How many times haven't we decided to take liberties with that wonderful gift that God has given to us? Now, does God's word offend 
Absolutely. Every time God's word points out a sin in any of our lives or a problem or something that needs to be improved, we take offense. But it is not just marriage and divorce that comes under the, uh, under the microscope of human life. There are so many other relationships that God has given to us, whether it be between siblings or parents or children or grandparents or friends or colleagues. They're designed to be helpful. They're designed to be part of that community, part of that not being alone. And yet how many times haven't we broken those relationships? How many times haven't we broken our promises that we've made in those types of relationships as well? In saying that it is not good for man to be alone, God is not saying here that only the married life receives his blessing. Far from it. He was speaking about Adam as the only human being and now with his partner, he would have community, companionship, human interaction, which is critical for all of us. Whether we are single, whether we are married, whether we are widowed, whether we are divorced, whatever our situation may be. For God designs people to be in community. He designs people to be brought together like this in in a congregation where the Spirit is, is so at work and where we can be empowered and emboldened and encouraged by one another. And yet, how many times don't we take this relationship for granted? How many times don't we break our promises as our, confirma- as our confirmands do when they make their promises to be regular and active in worship and in service to God and giving of themselves? We all fall under God's condemnation. But where can we turn? I think it's fascinating how Mark, as he wrote the gospel that he penned, that immediately following this discourse about marriage and remarriage and divorce and how offended people may have been, he then proceeds to recount the fact that there were children being brought to Jesus. Little children, in fact. Parents were bringing them to Jesus to have him touch them. But did you notice the response by those who were supposedly closest to Jesus, the, the church of the day, if you will? Their response was, no. No, get these children out of here. Don't bring them to Jesus. He doesn't have time for this. And they did so in such a way that it says Jesus was indignant. And he said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to someone who has faith like a child. Not childish faith that believes anything and everything that is told to them, regardless of the source, but a childlike faith that knows who it can trust and then trusts completely, knowing that it is true when God speaks His word. 
Jesus still invites his children of any age, of any size, of any background, whether single or married or divorced or widowed, to come to him. Because he wants to bless us. He wants to touch us, wrap his arms around us, the very arms that were extended on the cross when he paid the price for all of our sins, including our sins against marriage and every other relationship that we have, including all of our sins, the known and the secret. He wraps those loving arms around us. He touches us and blesses us. In Jesus' name. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.